0: Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law. I'm Jill Wine-Banks. Joyce is away this week, but Kim, Barb, and I will be discussing how to negotiate in any situation, whether it's with an opposing party in a lawsuit, your neighbor or spouse, or the Taliban. Then we will take time to celebrate the 101st anniversary of the 19th Amendment and examine the processes facing refugees and those seeking asylum in this country. And as always... We look forward to answering some of your questions at the end of the show, but before we begin, it's summertime, and that always makes me think of music, and so I want to talk about some of your favorite songs of the summer, and uh, go ahead, who wants to start this one?
1: Barb, you want to start? Yeah, you know it's uh, it's funny you asked Jill, because I am not a big music listener. If I am listening mm. to you know a radio or device, I mostly listen to podcasts or um, the Tiger Game on a summer <laughs> on a summer night. Um, but in the summer, I really like to listen to songs that kind of give that summer mood. You know, that just gets you feeling like summer. And there's a great song. I don't know if you guys know the song that's that's popular now called "Solar Power" by Lord. It's got like the best summer vibe. It's kind of like a little bit spacey, but it's got a little bit of a beat. My my teenage daughter turned me on to that one, so I'm not usually so um, so current. But, you know, all the old stuff like, you know, Martha Reeves and the Vandellas with dancing in the street or oh, Chicago God. Saturday in the Park. There's that song by uh, Stevie Wonder, Summer Soft, uh, Drift Away by Dobie Gray. Um, there's it's some more recent songs. Childish Gambino has that "Feels Like Summer." That's a good one. Yeah. And Kim, I remember once you tweeted about um, "Summertime" by Will Smith. Yes, uh, that's a good one. That one's kind of fun. It's a it, classic gets you in the summer mood. So I just like listening to songs that get me in the summer mood. What about you?
2: The same, first of all, as you're talking, I'm like literally writing this down and like, I'm gonna make a playlist. Yeah, they're on my no playlist. Yeah, this sounds really good. Yeah, I like to listen to music, particularly in the summer. Another one, a good one that comes to mind is um Summer Breeze by Seals and Croft. Oh, yeah, good yes. one, and on also list. redone by the Isley Brothers, which is also fantastic. So, that's uh, always on my summer playlist. I love music in the summer, but I love it all the time. And lately I've been listening to it a lot in the evening just to sort of wind down, and this was – A pretty uh, busy and you know difficult news week with everything that was going on, and I often turn to nostalgia. And one of my favorite uh, albums when I was younger was the first album from Tracy Chapman. And I was listening to that the other day and tweeted uh, tweeted that one out, which is a favorite. I know Barb, you responded to. Yeah, Um, that's a
1: great song. The whole album's great. It's a
2: great it's a great whole album. So you know, music is something that I always turn to. I know my husband loves listening to. Frank Sinatra and Stevie Wonder and Aretha Uh, Franklin. So there's always mm -hmm. some music playing.
1: Stevie Wonder and Aretha Franklin are great.
2: Fantastic. I I was your husband. Yes, indeed. (laughs) What else, Jill? What else do you like to listen to?
1: Obviously,
0: I'm the oldest one here. And uh, my songs are almost anything from the 50s and 60s. I love all those songs. And that goes back to things like Itsy Bitsy Teeny weeny Yellow Polka Dot Ah! Bikini. (laughs) It goes back to Surfing USA by the Beach Boys. uh, Dancing in the Streets, Martha and the Vandellas. um, Mm -hmm. Hot Fun in the Summertime, Sly and the Family Stone. Under the Boardwalk, The Drifters. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. When I listen, I really like to feel energized. I want to get up and dance. And Mm -hmm. my husband and I frequently actually do start doing the twist or just jumping around, doing rock and roll. Um, And it's just a fun thing for us to do. So those are the ones that I like the best.
1: We should ask our listeners to share with us their favorite summer songs. I want to make a playlist too. I've I've got one going, but I'd love to add to it. And sometimes you don't think of all the good songs yourself. So I've I've added some of yours to mine. And uh, listeners, please share with us your favorite songs of summer.
2: That would be so much fun. And also, Barb, the listeners helped you last week with uh, finding soft drinks.
1: Yes, I'm glad you mentioned that, Kim. Um, We got a lot of great responses. You know, I have this quest to try to give up diet pop. And yes, it is pop and not soda. We also got a lot of comments about that. Um, And I got a lot of great ideas about uh, drinking water, drinking sparkling water, adding fruit to sparkling water, using... um, the um, what do you call the device, Jill? That has the machine that puts the bubbles in the
0: Soda Stream or Soda
1: Stream, yeah, the pitcher that has the sent-
0: diffuser in it.
1: Yeah, and you, you you sent me some pictures on that. So, uh, thank you to all our listeners who are helping me to kick the pop habit. I will report that I've I've been pretty good this week, drinking mostly sparkling water. Um, I've had two Diet Cokes, and they were delicious. But I'm working on it. <laughs> what are you
0: drinking right baby now, steps, Barb? Hold steps. up your glass. I want to see it. Oh,
1: uh, here, Jill.
0: It's empty. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, it was a fresca the other day. Bad girl. (laughs) Okay, so let's get a little bit more serious. Um, We have three really good topics this week, and in some way they all kind of have something to do with Afghanistan, as our listeners will hear as we proceed. Um, The first topic, which I mentioned in the introduction, was basically how to negotiate with anyone about anything. And I I want us to talk about what we've all learned from our life experiences that apply to negotiating, whether it's with the Taliban, your boss, your spouse, an unreasonable neighbor. So um, Barb, do you want to lead us
1: through that, please? I I would love to. And in in fact, I'm going to start this conversation with just a little bit of Background on what's been happening in Afghanistan. Uh, I know all three of us have been heartbroken to see these images coming out of Afghanistan uh, for the people of Afghanistan. You know, people trying to climb onto planes as they're as they're lifting off and falling, some to their death. So it's uh, it's been a heartbreaking week as people are trying to get out of Afghanistan with the withdrawal of U.S. troops after 20 years. Um, You know, following the attacks of 9-11, we went into Afghanistan. Uh, The goal at the time uh, was in response to 9-11. We wanted to uh, find, disrupt and destroy al Qaeda, including Osama bin Laden. And that piece of the mission was largely successful. But then it grew into 20 years of nation building and trying to keep the Taliban away from uh, the Afghani people. And that's been a bit of a mess. Um, And we saw as soon as the U.S. troops began to withdraw, there was a very quick takeover of the country and its capital by the Taliban. It took about five days. And the Taliban is, uh, uh, for people who haven't followed this closely, a political and religious group that was in power before the U.S. first attacked in 2001. Um, And when the Taliban had been been in power, they had all kinds of very harsh rules about the treatment of women, uh, religious minorities, like they don't let women— attend school, for example, and be educated. Uh, Also, harsh treatment for political opponents. And the expectation is that we will soon see more of the same, including uh, punishment for those Afghanis who assisted the United States. And so uh, our hearts go out to all of those people who are there and attempting to evacuate. Um, The situation, though, came about as part of negotiation, Uh, a deal negotiated by President Trump in 2020, Um, And I will say also, it it appears to me to be a plan that was very, very poorly executed by the Biden administration. So I I, I think the the fault there needs to be shared equally by a number of administrations. But Trump's deal, promised to remove U.S. troops in exchange for an agreement not to harbor terrorists. And, you know, some critics have faulted this deal itself for lacking really a long-term strategy. Um, you know, don't harbor terrorists. Well, once you leave, once you've played your card, you've lost all leverage to enforce the provision that you think is important about harboring terrorists, right? I mean, so they may say, yes, we promise not to harbor terrorists. Once you're gone, you've kind of lost that leverage uh, to to encourage them to comply with that. Um, And so once President Trump made it clear we were leaving, originally he said in May, Biden extended it until uh, late July and early August, the Afghan forces basically rolled over. They they lost their ability to fight once the U.S. left. And so the Taliban, Taliban regrouped quickly and has stormed back into power. So it was that conversation that got, got us talking about negotiations. Uh, looking at the deal that, that Trump negotiated is, it seems like such a bad one in, in hindsight. Um, and so uh, we wanted to share some of the thoughts and tips that we have picked up over the years in our work about negotiating. And Jill, um, I know you've worked for, uh, you were general counsel of the army, you worked for Motorola, um, and you have been involved in disputes with neighbors. Uh, Can you tell us about, you know, whether it's uh, negotiating with an opposing party in a lawsuit or a neighbor or a spouse or the Taliban, uh, what are some of uh, your best tips for how to negotiate in any situation?
0: Let me start with an example that talks about really how you could negotiate with anyone. And uh, my negotiations have included with uh, the Pakistan government, with our own government, um, with business partners, with defense counsel. But one thing I learned, and I took a class that my law school, Columbia, offered for alums uh, about how to negotiate with unreasonable people. And it gave a wonderful example. It said, there are two people bidding on the only crate of a particular type of orange, and the price is skyrocketing beyond anything that is reasonable. Neither of them can really afford it, but neither of them is going to give up because they both have a critical need for this. But what they don't know is that each of them needs a different thing from the orange. One needs the rind, and the other needs the juice. So, they don't have to bid against each other. They could actually work together and get this for a fraction of the price, and both could have what they want. So, the real first thing is to identify what is it that you really want from this negotiation, and try to think about and what does the other side want, and can you get it? So, I had a dispute with a neighbor, and it turns out that he really only wanted the fence to face in a certain direction so that he would see the front of the fence. I only wanted it to be tall enough that I didn't have to see into his yard. And so it was easy to resolve when I realized that. I'm happy to have the fence face any way you want, as long as it's the height I want. And so I learned an important lesson from that, and I think that applies in so many things. But the first and most important part of this is to identify your goal and to look for a common goal with the other side. And then you have to be clear in expressing what it is that you're settling on. What is the agreement? And as you were pointing out, Barb, in discussing what happened with negotiating with the Taliban, it's, you know, as long as they don't harbor terrorists, well, what enforcement do we have? How will we know they aren't doing it? What are the details of that? So you have to not only identify your goal, but a way to make sure that the goal is achieved and that the other side carries through on it. The other thing that I learned, in, in, because my negotiations, particularly in business, were my first assignment was Pakistan, but I also worked in Russia, Ukraine, China, Japan, Europe, South America, is the culture Differences in each country. And even if you're looking for the same goal in each country, you can't do it the same way. You have to take into account the cultural differences. And well, in Pakistan also, because Sharia law governs, you also have to take into account the differences in the legal system. But being astute, even in terms of when you first meet them, in some countries, if you don't take the time to build a relationship with the other side, They will never come to an agreement with you. That's very important. You have to spend time having meals with them and getting to know them. That's not always true in some countries, but in many it is. And you have to learn, you know, can you sit and cross your leg, or is that an insult to them? There are so many little details that will make a difference to whether you and they can get along. So my advice is, you know, pay attention to what your goal is. Look for the other person's point of view, listen to them, hear them, pay attention to the cultural differences and find a way to make sure you work out the details that you, otherwise your your venture will end up failing.
1: Well, that's some great advice. How about you Kim? You uh you've wanted to be a lawyer all your life. What what have you learned in your lifetime of negotiations that you can share with our listeners?
2: Yeah, so I haven't negotiated with as many uh, folks. I certainly never negotiated with foreign nations or even our nation. Like, Jill has but the first uh person i I ever negotiated on behalf of uh was my mom, and that was long <laughs> before I was a lawyer or even when I went to law school. I was a teenager i can 't remember if I was in high school or college, but I had gone out for a walk with my mom uh, at a local park, and there was an uneven sidewalk uh, on the path that goes around this lake, and my mom tripped on it, fell, she hit her head on the ground and Ooh. and needed some. Medical care. She was okay, but she did get hurt in all of this. And of course, we notified the park officials immediately uh, who had to come and with a golf cart and come uh, get us back to our car because my mom was really shaken up and a bit dizzy afterwards. Well, afterwards, uh, the, the folks from the park reached out to us. Uh, to talk a little bit about this. And I was present since I was a witness and I was there both on the scene. And afterwards, they actually came out to our house. And there was a little negotiation that happened. uh, And I learned a lot. First of all, one of the things that I learned is to know your facts. And at the time I remember the, the folks asking my mom, okay, well, what happened? Was it, you, you said you were dizzy. Did you get dizzy and then you fell? And I said, no, she, we were walking. She was fine. She tripped and hit her head and she was dizzy after she hit her head. Those are a very different set of facts than the one that was being put forward. And, um, I, 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 you know, proved to be a good witness, and in the end, the park uh, ended up paying not only for uh, my mom's reimbursing her for the medical expenses, but also giving her uh, a little settlement amount that I helped negotiate as well. It's you. Undisco- undisclosed, Uh and I, I and this charged, is pre
1: lawyer before you're even this a lawyer is
2: before I was still she a teenager. She was a natural born lawyer. lawyer. Is what she was. <laughs> I charge my mom a lot less than the normal 33. <laughs> yes, you waived your usual well. retainer. Um, but, but it, you know, I took that into being uh, a lawyer into my profession. Uh, to know. I think one of the other things I learned from that experience is to express confidence in your position. not, I'm not -hmm. talking about puffery or saying anything untruthful. Mm -hmm. Knowing where your strong points are, making your case and making it confidently. It makes such a big difference. If I was unsure or tentative in that situation it would have come out Mm -hmm. a lot differently and I certainly felt that way when I was on the other side of a negotiating table with opposing counsel when I worked as an attorney and certainly that happens with anyone, even if they are negotiating something like offense, if you express confidence in what you want, what you know, that is going to get you a lot farther than if you seem tentative or unsure. Um, definitely, I agree uh, on the point where Jill was talking about building a relationship. I found it really helpful just to be amiable, you know, just to be not a jerk. Um, there are a lot of jerk attorneys that I <laughs> yeah. found when I practiced in litigation. I never took that route. And I find that you can bring a lot more people to the table if you treat them respectfully, if you treat them nicely, if you don't make things that don't need to be adversarial or, or, or um, you know, disagreeable if, if you don't do that. If someone asks you for extra time, for example, to uh, get a document request to them, they need another week or two, of course, say yes. If, if it doesn't bother or uh, put you or your client at any disadvantage or certainly gra- uh, grant them that grace, uh, things like that. And I found that that has certainly gotten me a lot farther mm-hmm. Uh, in helping folks. And I know we mentioned briefly uh, in the employment context, I think this is particularly important, important for women. And I found this as a professional, uh, when you're trying to do something like negotiate a, a contract or, or ask or negotiate a salary, is know your worth. That's yeah. difficult. A lot of times when you don't know what people are making, or you don't know exactly what to ask for. There are so many studies that show that one rem- women one reason women are so uh, systematically underpaid compared to men, just because they don't ask for the money that they deserve. They don't ask to be compensated for their time in the way that men just are naturally brought up to do that. So always know your worth. Always don't give any work away for free. Uh, and, and don't be afraid to ask for it in negotiation. It, the worst thing that can happen is people say no. Um, and these are uh, uh, some of the the skills that brought along the way, certainly a lot of things that Jill said, I, I appreciated and learned along the way, too, in my practice and in life.
1: Yeah, those are all great um, pieces of advice, Kim, and, and, and same with you, Jill. You know, I learned an awful lot about the art of negotiation in my very first job out of law school. I was a law clerk for a judge, a uh, U.S. District Court judge named Bernard Friedman, wonderful judge, wonderful mentor friend to this day. Um, but he was a master at settling cases. He was so good. And I watched and learned what he did and, and and learned some lessons that have served me well as a lawyer throughout my career. Um, One really simple one is don't go first. If you let the other person go first, you you learn a lot about where they are. Like you might have been happy with some smaller amount and they offered you way more than you were ever going to ask for in the first place. So if you can get them to make the first offer, that can be extremely valuable. Um, The other is to listen to the full offer. Uh, Hear them out. Make sure you understand it and listen to it. Uh, so being a good listener as well. There's a very good example of this on an episode of Seinfeld. I don't know if you guys are Seinfeld fans, but do you remember the episode uh, where Kramer spilled his uh, latte all over himself and burned himself? It, you know, yes. was mocking that McDonald's case that had happened in uh, in real life, and uh, he hired a, a lawyer, uh, and the lawyer, um, you know, said, "All right, we're going in to um, negotiate with." the coffee company uh, at their headquarters and let me do the talking, don't say anything, Just we're just gonna listen, that's our job today. Um, and so he, they walk in and they sit down and, and they show a scene before they enter the room where the lawyers, uh, you know, a group of very sophisticated looking lawyers in their fancy suits and everything, and there's like six of them, and they say, all right, remember our deal, we're not gonna go above a million dollars and um, I don't know, can we throw in like, I don't know, free coffee for life or something, yeah, sure, whatever, that sounds fine. They come in and they say, "Mr. Kramer, let's get right to the point. Um, we are prepared to offer you free coffee for life." And and Kramer jumps up and says, "I'll take it." <laughs> so he lost his his million dollars because he didn't listen. So you got to listen um, as well. Another one is don't bid against yourself. Like if you've made an offer um, for a thousand dollars, and don't don't make the next offer. Like you need to wait for your uh, adversary to bid next, so you find out where you are, and so you should never come back if they say no to a thousand. You don't now come back and say, well, how about would you take eight hundred? You know, you have to let them tell you where they are. Are they close to a thousand, or are they at you know not even in the ballpark? They're at ten dollars. You know, so you get a a feel for where they are uh, in all of it. But uh, you know, back to the point that Jill raised about you know the win-win situation. I think is is so important. And as she said you might have to dig a little bit and one of the great things um judge friedman did was spending a little time with each party to find out what it was they really wanted and i think oftentimes the lawyers assume it's all about the money and that you know the plaintiff wants as much money as they can get and the defendant wants to pay as little as possible and that's it but so often there are other variables at play a lot of times it's also about respect Uh, You know, in an employment case, so often if a a person feels like they were aggrieved by their employer, what they really want is an apology. That can be worth an awful lot of money. Um, So it isn't just that. Um, And I can think of uh, a case that Judge Friedman settled that was just fantastic on this point. There was a major auto company that was suing a small toy maker. The toy maker had made unlicensed replicas of a particular sports car. And so the automaker had a very strong case of trademark infringement. You know, they never got permission to use this trademark and they made these toys. Um, and during the negotiations, the, the, uh, the, the car uh, maker said, we want them to cease and desist making the toys and we want them to destroy all the toys in their inventory. Um, and the toy maker agreed with the cease and desist part, but they just could not bear the idea of destroying all these toys that they spent a lot of time uh, and research and development making. And so Judge Friedman came up with this great creative win-win compromise. He said that the toy company you know, would stop making the toys, and they agreed to that, and that together they would donate the toys to children's hospitals all over the country. And so the two companies end up issuing a joint press release and walked away out of court like old friends. I mean, just a total win-win. So when you really dig into what matters to either parties, there are more variables than just, you know, the, the obvious ones like the money. And so I think that, uh, that Jill, you raise a really good point. Right. Finding I mean, ways for win-win is the way to, to win a negotiation. It's that old,
0: I need the rind and you need the juice. But the other part yeah. of that is it's compromise is not losing Compromise mm-hmm. is when you both win, and we need to mm-hmm. keep that in mind. I played golf yesterday, and I was wearing my girlfriend collective skort, and I really thought it was terrific. Uh, have any of you tried that one?
1: Uh, I too have the skirt, and I play golf, Jill. I didn't know you played golf, um, except I don't wear skorts when I play golf. Maybe I should. Um, again, it it, it creates this expectation that you actually have game, you know, that you're pretty good. Um, So maybe that's something I'll aspire to. But I do like the skort and I own it and wear it for other purposes. Um, And I find the Girlfriend Collective clothing to be really functional and breathable and comfortable. How about you, Kim? Have you been wearing their
2: stuff? Yeah, it's funny. I was out on a hike with my husband recently and he turned to me and said, you look really nice. Which oh, he never wow. tells me when I'm in, you know, my athletic gear. And I was wearing Girlfriend Collective. I was wearing the mm-hmm. the leggings and the top, and um, they have nice colors. I was wearing a, a nice like eggplant like color, uh, and you know he dug it. So it's nice to to get out and do your uh, do your activities and still look stylish. So Girlfriend Collective, thanks for that. You know, we've all been
0: wearing nothing but athletic wear and (laughs) yoga pants and
2: sweatpants. But now you can do that and look good. Isn't that a big deal? It is really great. And Girlfriend Collective is sustainable, ethically made activewear. With their inclusive sizing from extra, extra small to 6XL, their incredible bras, leggings, shorts, tanks, tees, and swimsuits are the perfect choice for anyone. And don't forget the squirts. Whether you're working out, running errands, or doing nothing at all, Girlfriend Collective
0: has functional fabrics, colors, and styles for any activity, and all their clothing and packaging are 100% recyclable.
1: And, you know, their best-selling leggings come with pockets. Uh, I, one one week, we're going to have to do a whole episode dedicated to Ode to the Pocket. Yes. I love pockets. Um, and they have different levels of support. You'll find the perfect fit. Uh, and so they also have the garment take-back program, which they call Re-Girlfriend, when you change styles, you can return pieces
2: for upcycling into new girlfriend gear. Join us in joining the collective today. For listeners of the show, Girlfriend Collective is offering first-time customers $25 off purchases of $100 or more when you go to girlfriend.com slash sisters. That's
0: $25 off $100 or more. When you go to girlfriend.com/sisters, again girlfriend.com/sisters. That's of course for the hashtag sisters-in-law, or look for the link in our show notes. Another topic, which also can be related to Afghanistan a little, uh, particularly to the women and girls in Afghanistan and beyond. Uh, is our celebration of the 101st anniversary of the 19th Amendment, which passed and became law in America in 1920.
2: And Kim, you're going to lead our discussion of that topic. Yes. So this week, as you said, marked the 101st anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, which gave women a constitutional right to vote. And it came after a long fight, and it was a long time coming. You know, to this day, I'm amazed at the fact that women in this country did not get the constitutionally protected right to vote until the 20th century. I mean, I just think that's incredible, but I digress. Um, The 19th Amendment is also misunderstood in a lot of ways. You know, it did not by itself grant a full right to vote to all American women. So Barb, I want to start there. Talk about that. Talk about what the amendment did and did not do.
1: Yeah, so I I think this is a really interesting um, angle on the Nineteenth Amendment. I think you know we all we all celebrated as this great thing where women got the right to vote. And like you, Kim, I'm just aghast that it took until 1920 when you think about you know our country's formation in the late 18th century. But um, the the Nineteenth Amendment, if you look at the language of it, actually does not it, it, affirmatively give the right to vote to women. The text says uh, the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. So it says you can't discriminate uh, on the basis of sex. It doesn't say women get to vote. Um, And so, you know, in other words, after the ratification of the 19th Amendment, states were no longer able to say you can't vote just because because you're a woman, but they still did some of the same things we see today in terms of voter suppression. And so state officials who wanted to stop People from voting who happened to be women had other ways to do that. And so they used some of those same suppression tactics that we see. And, you know, they appear neutral on their face, but they have a disparate impact on women. One was poll taxes. You know, women didn't have their own uh, bank accounts and property and funds to be able to pay poll taxes. And although um, it may have been that white women had the ability to vote, There were Jim Crow laws in the South that kept all black people from voting, including black women. And so, you know, there they used poll taxes and literacy tests and grandfather clauses, you know, the old, you can only vote if your grandfather could vote. Oh, what's that? Your grandfather was a slave. Oh, well, how too bad for you. Um, Indigenous women were not permitted to vote in 1920 when the 19th Amendment was passed because they were considered wards of the state. Uh, Most Asian women were not permitted to vote because the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 barred Chinese immigrants from becoming U.S. citizens. And so uh, by the early 20th century, it was extended to all immigrants from Asia. So they weren't allowed to vote either. Um, It wasn't until the passage of the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act that these restrictions on Asian Americans uh, were permitted to become citizens and then uh, able to vote. Um, And then, you know, there's the Voting Rights Act of 1965 that helped end some of these suppression efforts that is now being eroded.
2: Yeah, you know, it's really important to remember that part of the history as we celebrate this milestone. And um, another thing that's important is remembering the intersection of women's suffrage rights rights. Uh, and the fight for rights of other groups. You know, when I was away a couple of weeks ago, one of the places that I got to go uh, was the site of the 1948 Women's Right Convention in Seneca Falls, New York. And it was really striking because on the building right next to the the building, which still stands where this convention took place, is this mural. And it includes not only the pioneering women of the suffrage movement, uh, like uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucretia. Shamott and Mary uh, Ann McClintock and uh, Jane Hunt. But also a part of this mural is a portrait of Frederick Douglass, the uh, famed abolitionist who spoke at that convention. And according to the historians there, gave one of the most rousing addresses of the entire convention in favor of uh, women's voting rights. Uh, And, you know, there were also representatives is important to note. There's also uh, representatives of the uh, indigenous nations whose members also spoke at this convention then, which is amazing. We think about that in 1848 mm-hmm. um, and they are also represented in this mural. And so, so think of that at the height of uh, the women's suffrage movement, it was also the height of the abolitionist movement. It was before the civil war. Um, it was before uh, the emancipation proclamation had been signed and So abolitionists like Frederick Douglass understood the importance of the suffrage movement. Uh, In fact, the Seneca Falls Convention itself grew out of the fact that a lot of these women had gone uh, to the 1814 anti-slavery conference. And because they were women, they weren't allowed to speak. And so they decided they were going to get together and fight for the rights of women so that they could advocate for the rights of others as well as themselves, which is really fascinating. But alas, this harmony would not last forever. Uh, While, for example, Black women were a crucial part of suffrage efforts from the beginning, not all the folks involved believed uh, that they should have been. And... um, You know, as Barb said, the right to vote was never granted immediately. It was hard fought for and it took a lot of other things uh, to make it uh, to make it more real. It still isn't fully uh, realized, but to make it more realized. And even those who supported the ability of who supported suffrage. A lot of them supported it in that they wanted wealthier, privileged white women to be able to vote. Didn't always include people in other marginalized groups, poorer people, people who were not landowners or whose husbands in, the, in some cases were not landowners, uh, black and brown folks, uh, immigrants. Uh, they did not always think that if those people were allowed to vote, that the things that they were vote for would be aligned with the issues that were important to them, and so they were often left on the sidelines, and that was part of the reason for this conflict between folks who were supporting abolition and subsequently civil rights and those who were supporting suffrages. for example, Stanton, she opposed the Fifteenth Amendment, which bars the denial of the right to vote based on race because it would grant Black men the right to vote before women. And in that time, in that case, it meant white women. Um, And so that was part of the reason that ultimately Frederick Douglass was no longer a part of that suffrage movement, that he was so instrumental uh, in helping to start. And, you know, a lot of Black and brown folks were sidelined in those times. So, you know, I think we still see today when we see – civil rights efforts and and calls for equality, you see a lot of allyship, but sometimes there's still difficulty between different groups whose interests you could think that we could all embrace, but sometimes chafe against one another. And that certainly was the case uh, at the beginning of the suffrage movement. Um, So Jill, the 19th Amendment and the rights of women uh, that they have fought for serve as an international model in a way, despite our problems. But the state of women's rights around the globe is still quite uneven. We are seeing a clear example of that with what's going on in Afghanistan. So can you talk a little bit more about that? How has America affected the world with respect to the right to vote and women's rights in general? First of all, um, I, I am proud of everything about
0: America and what we've accomplished and what we've allowed. But It is important to note that we actually weren't leaders in terms of women's right to vote. New Zealand, which is also one of the countries that's led by a woman right now and has had one of the best responses to COVID, was the first, and that was in 1893. So it was uh, way more than 20 years before we got around to doing it. Um, and, And I have to say that the fact that voting was ever an all male purview is something that makes me sick to my stomach and shows how much women have had to overcome and how much we still have to overcome. Uh, We don't have equal representation in Congress. There's never been a woman president. We came close to shattering that glass ceiling, but we didn't make it. And by the way, even Afghanistan preceded us in giving women the right to vote only by a year, but they were ahead of us. So, and and as Barb has made clear, voting rights are still restricted here. And unfortunately, we're going backwards. So now it's restricted for men and women because of the state initiatives to restrict and suppress the vote. Um, and, And another example I'll give from, for example, from Afghanistan, women do have the right to vote even though they don't have the right to go to school and work, uh, they've been taken out of the workplace to a large extent. But facially neutral things, which can be a problem for women, are there. So, for example, recently Afghanistan passed a rule that said that to avoid voter fraud, and that may sound familiar to our listeners because we've railed against the nonsense of voter fraud here, but to avoid n- voter fraud... They needed to verify who the voters were, and so they had to use facial recognition, which meant photographing an uncovered face. In in Afghanistan, women who leave the House have to cover their faces. So if they had to uncover their face for a man to photograph them so that they could vote, they weren't going to be able to vote. And that is right now a pending issue where there is negotiations between women's rights groups and um, the, I guess it'll now be with the Taliban to allow either have a female officer at every polling place who could do the photograph because you can't reveal your face to a a female. But it's that sort of thing that still is holding women back. And in terms of other things, because your question sort of goes beyond just voting, um, you know, jobs, the right to work, um, the, you know, when I got out of law school, there were help wanted ads that said help wanted male and help wanted female and women couldn't apply for the male jobs. Salaries were not equal in the military. There were certain jobs were for men only. Oh, even though a woman might have all of the skills it took, a woman couldn't apply for that job. And, um, there were a lot of things like you couldn't be raped by your husband. Uh, under the law, even though, of course, any woman would acknowledge that she could. Um, so, what this all comes down to, in my view, is that we still need the Equal Rights Amendment. It almost passed in my early years, but it didn't. And I think we need to have a new movement to get the Equal Rights Amendment to get true equality in this country.
1: Well, I agree with you, Jill. Can I just chime in? Um, you know, this idea of disparate impact is a really important yeah. one. And I think so often people miss that. Yeah. They think that as long as a law is, is facially neutral, right. then that is, there is no discrimination. And I, I, I got a lesson in this very early in life. I remember as a kid reading about a girl who wanted to play in the Ypsilanti Michigan Little League. Um, I was probably a little younger than she was, so I was watching this story carefully. And I remember asking my mom to explain it to me. And what they said was, we have a rule in this league that every player who plays must wear a protective cup. So you need to wear a protective cup if you want to play. And she, she didn't want to wear it. You know, she refused to wear that. But it was a way of pushing her out of the league to say, uh, you know, you're not welcome here and we want you out. And so, you know, there was a battle over that. But that is the way that people can use you know, facially neutral rules to discriminate against women. And so I think we really need to look past those things, just like these voting rights things, uh, you know, when they put in poll taxes and grandfather clauses and all those kinds of things. There is a devious effort to uh, use these facially neutral things as a pretext to uh, promote one group over another.
2: I think that's really important. And I think all of this uh, shows just, even though we have made a lot of progress, that there is still a long way to go.
1: Jill, I I haven't used function of beauty yet. Uh, What is it? It's a terrific product. It
0: is skincare and hair care, shampoo, conditioner, and it's all based on you take a test and they customize the product for you. So it's not like just going to the drugstore and picking up a shampoo that meets your needs. This one, you say to them, I want my shampoo to make my hair shiny, make it less frizzy. Whatever the thing is, I want it thicker, thinner, whatever. And they blend it specifically for you, and they adjust the color of the shampoo and the conditioner so that you can actually tell the difference when you're in the shower not wearing your glasses. They also will customize it with a fragrance or leave it fragrance-free. And I really think it does exactly what they promise it will do. I liked the shampoo and conditioner so much that I actually bought um, their face cleanser, and it's a really good face
2: cleanser. Have you tried it, Kim? I have, you know, I uh, love the fact that you can take this quiz. You know, I often, especially because I have uh, very thick, curly, dry hair, like a lot of black and brown folks do. And sometimes I go to the store and I'm trying so many different products just to find the one that works best for my hair. And I took this quiz. I was a little skeptical, I won't lie, Uh, but I got the shampoo and conditioner, and it really it gets my hair clean without feeling like it's stripped of all its moisture. The conditioner feels great and I chose the fragrance free option which is really good because I like to wear my own perfume and stuff and I don't want it to compete and I really really love it. Function
0: of Beauty is the world leader in customizable beauty offering the perfect formulas for your hair's needs. To get started take a quiz about your hairstyle and goals. Choose your color and fragrance Go fragrance-free, dye-free,
2: or switch them up based on how your hair looks and feels each season. After the quiz, Function of Beauty will send you your 100% customized formula. Function of Beauty also just launched an amazing subscriber program function with benefits subscribing gets you discounts on every order a free treatment every four orders access to exclusive fragrances and colors early access to new products and much more man i gotta try this
1: so turn your good hair days into a good hair life go to functionofbeauty.com sisters to take your quiz and save 20 percent on your first order functionofbeauty.com slash sisters to let them know you heard about it from us and to get 20% off your order functionofbeauty.com slash sisters, or look for the link in our show notes.
0: So let's move on now to our third topic. We haven't talked about general immigration issues, um, like the crowd seeking asylum, but forced to wait outside our borders in Mexico or the dreamers who are here uh, and can't get full recognition and rights. And I hope we'll do that in the future, but right now, as Barbara described in introducing the topic of negotiating and talking about what's happening in Afghanistan, there is a humanitarian and moral crisis facing America right now as a result of our leaving Afghanistan after being there for 20 years. And although President Biden addressed this issue in a press conference just about an hour before we're recording this, um, there is still a real problem. There are over 300,000 Afghan civilians who have been affiliated with our US mission there. Yet only 16,000 of those have uh, been issued an SIV, which is a special immigrant visa to allow them to come And that is since 2014. So we're talking about seven years. There are currently more than 18,000 applications in the pipeline, as well as thousands who aren't even eligible for this particular program, but who are in dire need of protection. And they are eligible to apply for an SIV, the Special Immigrant Visa, uh, but Can you tell us, Kim, let's start with that, our understanding what is the SIV process and specifically how long does it take? So how many people is it going to be able to save?
2: Yeah, these are great questions, uh, Jill, and and I I just want to say that all of this that we're talking about is an overview. I think our listeners know there are a few areas of law that are more complex uh, and complicated than immigration law. So this is not meant to be a, a ex, you know exhaustive discussion of this, but an overview of this process just to give folks and myself included a better idea of what's going on. So the special. The immigrant visa program in Afghanistan was set up in 2009 to protect allies who helped U.S. troops and other U.S. nationals in the country, literally doing so at the risk to their own lives. Um, We are talking about people like interpreters, translators. Uh, contractors and other workers who assisted Americans and allowed uh, American troops and nationals to do the work that they needed to do there. Uh, they were really crucial in that. And among those at greater at the greatest risk uh, along for these entire 20 years and certainly right now are, are individuals who have worked with the US or with NATO. Uh, also people working with women's rights and other advocacy groups. Um, and also those uh, working for human rights groups and journalists. And so it applies to Afghans who provided these services to help uh, the U.S. uh, in Afghanistan. It also applies to their spouses and to their children who are under 21 years old. And as Jill said, uh, there are an estimated 300,000, more than 300,000 Afghans who are eligible. But since 2014, only 16,000. SIVs have been issued. Now, this is in part due to just the backlog in the process. Uh, and this is, this is like you said, going back to 2014, this is before more recent uh, problems such as the pandemic and certainly now the unrest that is uh, happening in the country that is slowing down that process even more. So last month, Congress passed and the president signed a new law, that's designed to help speed up this process, it boosts the number of authorized visas by 8,000. Now that's important, it helps again, we were talking about 300,000 people. So it's a drop in the bucket, but it's a it's a move in the right direction. And it's boosting the, uh, it's meant to boost the speed at which these um, applications can be processed by doing some things like postponing uh, the medical examination requirement until the applicants reach the United States. This was something that was supposed to take place before they left before. Um, it also changes the employment requirement, the amount of time they had to have been in those employment uh, positions from two years to one. Uh, And it also opens the program to the surviving spouses and children of the workers who were killed. So the goal is to, like we said, get rid of this backlog and produce uh, a process where these applications can be processed in as quickly as 30 days. I, i I'm skeptical of that number, but that is what is stated in this legislation. So the Biden administration also says it's taking other steps to speed up the process, including implementing a new priority two designation of people who were affiliated with the U.S. effort in Afghanistan and also gave uh, assistance, but who do not meet all of the requirements to, to qualify under the SIV program. Um, But they still will have to wait. If they have to flee Afghanistan, they will not be able to come into the United States while they wait for this process to play out. They will have to go to a third country uh, to wait in the meantime. So keep in mind that even with all of these programs in place, it's just a drop in the bucket of the people who need it. Um, So... What another thing that the United States is going to have to do is to convince uh, NATO and convince its allies to also uh, step in and provide some assistance to a lot of the people who need to flee Afghanistan uh, at this time. So once the people who are seeking SIVs through the United States arrive here— They are designated as parolees, that's the name, under the federal law. And they will be eligible for some limited services like uh, medical care, case management, and resettling services. Uh, And they are provided by the International Rescue Committee as well as some other affiliated organizations. Um, Now, the big question that remains is why didn't the process of speeding these up, knowing that the United States had agreed to this pullout, why didn't this process start earlier, much, much earlier, so that we didn't see what unfolded this week. And President Biden uh, pointed to two factors. He said, first of all, a lot of Afghans didn't want to leave before all the events of the last 10 or 11 days started. Uh, And also Afghan officials urged uh, against a big evacuation of Afghan nationals for fear that it would cause widespread panic. Uh, I'm not sure that what has unfolded was better than uh, whatever fears of widespread, widespread panic there may have been. Those are
0: such good points, Kim. And, um, if we look at the numbers, just the sheer volume of this, Barb, it doesn't sound like we are going to be able to meet our moral obligation. We promised the people who helped us that we would get them out. And August 31st is our withdrawal date. That's, you know, what, 10 days from now. And, even if we could process the applications, the planes can only hold five to 9,000 a day, that's not going to get 18,000, maybe 18,000 it could get out, but it's not gonna get out the hundreds of thousands that need to. So what's the solution? Uh, is, is it to extend the time deadline for us to leave? Is it to transport them to a third country for processing? Uh, is it to add staff in country to process them? What, what, what are the ways we can approach this?
1: Yeah, I, I think some combination of all of those things, Jill is, is necessary. And I agree with you that we have a moral obligation to, to help these people. Um, As you said, there's 300,000 Afghan civilians who've been affiliated with U S military and only 16,000 SIVs have been issued since 2014. And so We've got a lot of applications in the pipeline, and now we have this new program and you know it's not just I think people think of it as just you know people affiliated with the military, so there are translators um, and advisors who do help the military, but then there are also these non government organizations yes. that, with the assurance that the u s was going to you know protect them from the taliban have have set up. Schools for girls and other things uh, that are now in grave danger, not only their efforts, but their own personal safety, because they were promised and they believed us. The United States, when we came in and said, we will provide a safe haven for you to do this important work, when we were involved in, you know, more of a nation building uh, effort than simply uh, our initial effort to go in there. You know, the mission really evolved over those 20 years. Um, and, and now that we're leaving, and I, I I don't disagree that it's the right decision. You know, as President Biden said, um, you know, at some point it's a forever war and the, the mission is futile and you could stay there forever and not accomplish anything. But I do think we have some moral obligation to the people who helped us and who we promised that we would protect them from the Taliban. So I think some of the things, you know, extending... Past August thirty first for our you know our withdrawal doesn't seem likely you know President Biden was pretty ruthless in that speech you know for the guy who's known for um, you know being so warm and touchy feely and uh, uh, you know e- empathetic and all those things that speech was pretty cold it was we had to do it we pulled blood I take responsibility you know boom I'm gone. Um, so that, that, I think, I don't see us staying beyond, you know, August 31st for that purpose. So Barbara, I, I
0: heard something different in his speech because when he was pushed, he did say, one, we will get out all American citizens. And two, yes, we will evaluate that departure date when it comes so that we can meet our obligation. He did recognize an obligation to all of those that we had uh, allowed to help us, had asked to help us, had mm-hmm. promised in exchange that they would be protected. And he is now saying, yes, that that they will consider, and I take that as that they will stay for some period of time. Or going back to your topic, they will negotiate with the Taliban to do something yeah. to allow safe passage and to get the people out um, I don't see. But he said that
2: today. He had two speeches before that that I would agree with. Barb did not get to that aspect of it. I think buying time
1: is what they really need to do, and one way to buy time is to find a third place where they can, you know, uh, be and stay for processing until they come to the United States. But as you say, Jill, just the logistics of getting them on planes and out of the country. I think is going to be impossible unless we can extend that deadline uh, beyond August 31st. But I think in the meantime, and I also think there's a very legitimate fear about this. Um, Yes, we want to uh, allow them into the United States. I mean, maybe some people disagree about that, but I think we have a moral obligation to do that, to take them in. Maybe other NATO countries will agree to take some as well. Um, But there is a legitimate basis for processing people in a country that has a history of sponsoring terrorism, I think that there could be people who try to exploit this program yes. to get into the United yeah, States. Absolutely. And so I think you have to be careful of that as a matter th- of national security. I th- so I think I agree you would do that. I, I but just, you could do it yes. at a military base. Yes. Right? Like um, I, I heard uh, Ben Rose, the former Obama foreign policy advisor on a podcast today, saying that our base on Guam, for example, could accommodate very large numbers uh, for a short period of time while you do this processing and this background check and other things to make sure that they're not going to pose a danger to the United States when they come here. Um, And that would be a way of just buying some more time before you allow them passage into the United States. I'm very
2: glad you made that point. Yeah, go ahead, Kim. I I, I was going to say, I didn't mean to step on you, Barb. I apologize for that. I, I just think that it's a really important point to make because I think sometimes people disingenuously Make uh, the argument that this produced this creates a national security risk. Mm-hmm. We have seen this in the refugee crisis from Syria. We have seen this in other circumstances. There are few people who enter this country who are vetted more thoroughly than those making uh, SIV or or uh, refugee or asylum requests. They are vetted heavily. It would be f- for a a, a for a terrorist group to sort of use that as a keyhole would be unwise because mm-hmm. that so, is but, but, the- Which is why
1: we need to continue yes, that vetting. Correct. Like, correct. You know, I just want to be clear. Say, Forget about it. Just get out of there and come to the United States. But having some way station along the way where they could stay for a while Agreed. while we complete that work, I think would help alleviate that problem. Exactly. And
0: there is a difference between the SIV situation and refugees and asylum seekers. And it might be worth at another time to- pursue that. um, A little known fact is that I actually had an immigration practice at one point when I was uh, a partner at a law firm, although we represented... Jill,
1: is there anything you haven't done? (laughs)
0: Yeah, (laughs) let's see. I haven't sung in public, and I never will. That will forever be something I'll never do. But yeah, I mean, I I represented, of course, uh, except for a few pro pro bono cases, um, large corporations who were bringing in a top executive to work in America and needed a green card for them. But um, because of the pro bono work I did, I, I saw the need for asylum and refugee and I don't think we're doing it as well as we could. And I'd love to explore that with an expert at some point. Um, but I think, I hope our audience from this has learned a lot about what the delays are and what the legitimate reasons for vetting people is why we need to do that but where we have to meet our moral obligation to help the people that helped us
1: well you know i I don't love talking about my undergarments so kim will you talk about third love
2: I love third love because you know what, Barb? I don't like thinking about my undergarments. And with third love, I don't because they're comfortable. I put them on and then I can put it out of my mind for the rest of the day. Uh, it fits nicely under my clothing. And that's exactly what I look for uh, in a good set of undergarments. What about you, Jill? I, the thing that's
0: amazing is yesterday, um, someone from the University of Illinois was visiting and out of the blue, happened to say, you know, I've recently heard an ad for something called Third Love. Have you ever heard of it? And I went, <laughs> oh, yes, I have. And in fact, I'm wearing one right now. And I'm not even aware that I'm wearing it because it's so comfortable. I, I really have found them to be supportive, but with no binding or discomfort. It's really,
2: uh, it's a great product. It just really works very well. It's like what you need in a friend, someone who is supportive but who doesn't bug you. And that's what happens here.
1: Oh, God, where's Joyce when I need her? (laughs)
2: Third Love creates high-quality underwear, sleep, and loungewear with cup sizes from AA through I, including exclusive half cups and lounge and sleepwear in sizes extra small to 3X. Get ready to feel good. You take the easy fitting room quiz, and Third Love takes care of the rest, focusing on your fit Uh, on your size and shape and current issues and your personal style to deliver bras and underwear that are perfect for you. They even have stylists on standby. I love their washable silk pajamas. Third love took silk and
0: added a soft like a peach touch so you can feel amazing even while getting your eight hours sleep. Although I bet none of us gets eight hours (laughs) of sleep, but I do feel
1: good in them. Third Love gives their gently used return bras to women in need, donating
2: over $40 million in bras so far, and they've even healed some injured turtles. Third Love knows you deserve to feel comfortable and confident 24 7. So right now, they're offering our listeners 20% off the first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash sisters in law now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 20% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash sisters in law for 20% off today. Look for the link in our show notes.
0: As always, we've received some great listener questions this week. If you have a question for us for next week, please email us at sistersinlaw@politicon.com or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your question during the show, keep an eye on our Twitter feed throughout the week, where we'll answer as many of your questions as we can. And today, the first question comes from Linda. And Kim, I'm going to ask you to answer this one. Her question is, we talked about statute of limitations, and I didn't hear much about what does DNA do to the time to bring someone to trial? Can you
2: talk about DNA and trials? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think it's important to start with the difference when we're talking about DNA, uh, about its use as inculpatory evidence and exculpatory evidence. That means inculpatory evidence of guilt, essentially, or exculpatory evidence of innocence of a defendant. Now, it's important to know that at any point in time, even after a conviction, uh, if new evidence is brought up leading that that tends to prove the innocence of someone who is a defendant, that can be brought up at any time. That has nothing to do with uh, the statute of limitations. So if DNA evidence proves that someone did not commit a crime, that evidence can be brought forth at any time and it should be brought forth at any time. And we have seen time and time again, one of the, one of the most important uses of DNA evidence is to, uh, Vindicate people who are wrongly convicted. So that's an entirely different thing. I think there is also a a false idea about the use of DNA evidence as proof of guilt. You have to be very, very careful of that. It takes a lot of evidence, a a full scope of evidence, in order to meet the burden of beyond reasonable doubt and proving guilt. And often with DNA, there are a lot of other factors that come into play. There is chain of custody, where this DNA was, where this evidence was, who had it, who had the ability, who had access to it. Um, you have the fact that a lot of times DNA evidence will, of, of a lot of different people will be present in a crime scene, particularly if it's a home or someplace where people have been, where they've eaten or, or they have left hair behind. So DNA evidence in itself is rarely by itself, proof of guilt. And that's the thing uh, to keep in mind. It's mostly used uh, as proof of innocence.
0: Great answer, Kim. And uh, Barbara, I'm going to turn to you for the next question from Satcom Sid. What's the benefit of the growing number of plea deals for prosecutors? And I think I'm reading that question as in terms of the January 6th uh, cons- insurrectionists.
1: Yes, and we've seen a number of, of plea deals that have been accepted by defendants. I think there are probably a couple of different categories. So first is just sort of the low-hanging fruit. Uh, you, know, you approach somebody and you say to them, here's a video of you inside the Capitol. Uh, you have entered a restricted area. Uh, if you go to trial, you will be convicted. If you want to plead guilty, you can plead now and we will not oppose a request for probation or we will agree to cap your sentence at six months and you can argue for probation or you know, something like that. So I think a lot of those cases they will dispense with quite easily. And there is an advantage to the government. The government is usually willing to give up uh, something. You know, Sentencing guidelines uh, will usually give a reduction in an offense level for a defendant for acceptance of responsibility. And that recognizes the idea that to go to trial takes a lot of resources from the court and the prosecution. And so to save everybody that time and expense, if a defendant is willing to say, yes, I admit what I did, I'm wrong, I'm remorseful, I'd like to begin my rehabilitation and you know pay my debt to society, then they get a benefit for that. So I think we'll see a lot of those for people who... Um, might have been there, but not done anything terribly bad. For those who were assaulting officers or d- damaging property and other kinds of things, those might be a little tougher because I think the plea deals might be numbers that people are a little less willing to take. Um, and, and then at the most egregious levels, when you have a conspiracy, maybe you know some have been charged with conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, that being the congressional certification proceeding that was going on that day. Um, you might see people getting a benefit in exchange for cooperation. So it may be that well, you got me because I'm on video, but I was working with five other guys and they were there and I can tell you who they were, what their names were, what they did and agree even to testify against them or I'll give you my phone and a lot of other things that will help incriminate these other people and hold them accountable. And if somebody does that, then they usually get what's known as a substantial assistance motion for reduction in sentence. It's still up to the judge to decide what the sentence will be when someone cooperates like that, but the government agrees to make that cooperation known to the judge so that the judge can consider it in imposing a sentence. So that has value to all the parties involved as well. So um, I do think we'll continue to see more pleas, but then ultimately I'm sure there will be uh, some That do not plead guilty, and we will need to have trials for those cases. Also, just shout out for prosecutors all over the country who are working on this. I know some of the prosecutors from my former office in the Eastern District of Michigan have raised their hands, as have others around the country, because there's such a huge number, you know, more than 500 people charged. It's just too much for the D.C. office to handle in light of their other work. And so these prosecutors from all over the country have agreed to handle these cases. And because of the world of Zoom, they're able to do it remotely from their homes uh, and communicate, you know, with lawyers by phone and email email and have the hearings by Zoom. So kudos to all of the prosecutors nationwide who are working to resolve these cases.
0: Those were great points. And I want to stress the volume because I think one of the biggest advantages to prosecutors is that it allows them by taking these pleas and entering a plea agreement to handle the volume. I mean, this is an unusual case with so many defendants. So I'm going to take our last question, which comes from at Why Must You Judge? And Why Must You Judge asks, can those given pardons like Michael Flynn and Stone be indicted for the January 6th insurrection if they are connected, if there's evidence? And the answer is yes, that's a crime that happened after their pardon. And so they cannot be pardoned for a future crime. They were pardoned for crimes that they had already committed, and anything that happened after that is fair game. So prosecutors may be asking, what was Roger Stone doing on January 6th in his hotel room? He was seen with Proud Boys the day before. Why was he holed up? What did he know? So there's plenty that um, may yet to come against some of the people who were pardoned by President Trump at the time. And with that, I want to thank you, our listeners, for being with us today on Hashtag Sisters in Law with Barb McQuaid, Kimberly Atkins-Store, and me, Jill Wine-Banks. Joyce will be back with us next week. Don't forget to send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw@politicon.com, or tweet them for next week's show using Hashtag Sisters Law. This week's sponsors are Girlfriend Collective, Function of Beauty, and Third Love. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them as they really help make this show happen. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag sisters in law on Apple podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. We love to read your comments. See you next week with another episode. Hashtag sisters in law.
1: I need, I, we need a coda. I think Kim should sing us a summer song.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> it
1: was, yeah. Come on, Kim, you've got the let's let's hear something from the summer. <laughs> oh What's your favorite God, summer so song nice these days things. that you can sing? Oh man.
0: Just don't ask me. I don't even sing happy birthday. Nice. I don't sing the Star Feel. Spangled Banner. I mouth the words.
2: Wait, you both you guys both said dance in that street, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, yes, let's go. Yes, yes, That's yeah. a little Detroit anthem. It's like right, Detroit. Let's go. Detroit's a little shout the out the to house. Detroit. Let's go. Calling out around the world. Are you ready for a brand new beat? Come on, y'all, sing on. Summer's here and the time is right for dancing in the street.
1: That's awesome.
2: Excellent. <laughs> Absolutely Excellent awesome. Detroit, done.
0: So proud of you.
2: <laughs> Thanks. Have to go home to Detroit. Hope that made
0: everyone can. dance. That's what I want to see. <laughs>